Well, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We've come to the final mile of this ten-mile race Solomon has been faithfully training us for. The course runs through a Genesis 3 world, and similar to those of you who are crazy enough to run the Virginian ten-miler, the most difficult hill is at the end of the course, isn't it? Well, it is the same for Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Like a skilled coach, Solomon has been breaking down each mile of the course and pointing out every curve and every obstruction so so he can show us the wisest line to, to run. And as we've seen, the, the course is that we're we're running under the sun is full of debris, isn't it? Because of the curse, you can trip over things. And if you don't listen to the wisdom of your expert coach, that's where you're going to end up flat on your face, frustrated by the fall. And the race map that, that Solomon's laid out for us covers all of the different curves of, of God's sovereignty, of human injustice, of death, oppression and abuse, of loneliness and popularity, uh, our relationship to God, a corrupt government. And and the last mile that he's going to show us how to run today is related to to money. Chapter 5 covers a particularly tricky portion of life's racetrack, and all of them have a connection to eternity. There's the the frustration of religion in verses 1 through 7, the frustration of politics, Verses 8 and 9, and then the frustration of money, verses 10 through through 20. Now, I'm sure money has never caused you any type of frustration, has it? Well, it's caused you all kinds of frustration. And Solomon is going to give you wisdom in how to reduce some of that frustration this morning. Many of us would rather just take off running rather than deal with the obstacles that, that are in our paths or, or learning how to avoid the obstacles. We just hit them wide open. And, and again, as I said, end up flat on your face. But in a Genesis 3 world, ignorance is not, is not bliss. And Solomon says you have to listen to him, specifically with this, with this topic, because if you take the wrong path, you could disqualify yourself, or worse, not finish the race. One day, praise Jesus, the race will be over. And because he's already won the victor's crown, God's going to pass out participation medals to you and me. When that day comes, God will, will make everything right, but, but until then, we need wisdom. Wisdom in how to run. And I cannot think of, of anyone better to give us the wisdom on money than the wisest man that ever lived and the richest man that ever lived. I mean, as it relates to money, <clears throat> Solomon is not some ten-cup wannabe. Solomon is not an Instagram influencer with ten followers. <laughs> This is a man with immense wealth and a man gifted with God's wisdom. And if anyone could give us a wise word about the frustration and the wisdom of money, the right path to follow, it would be, it would be Solomon. My friend Joel was very insightful whenever, whenever he explained, and I listened to him explain how the New Testament perspective on money and how Solomon here in the Old Testament, how those two things come together and they complement one another. In the New Testament, Jesus gives us wisdom 
on what we should give away. Solomon is going to give us wisdom on, on how to deal with what we keep. The New Testament says be generous, be, uh, give freely as it's been freely given to you. Don't worry. Don't be anxious for anything. Your Father knows your needs beforehand. God loves a cheerful giver. Give sacrificially to, to the gospel uh, in your church, meaning don't tip God. Uh, pay the check of the teaching ministry. Keep the tip for yourself. But Solomon's now going to give us instructions on what to do with, with what you keep. That's different, isn't it? A sermon from God about keeping your money rather than giving your money. But that's exactly what this, this passage is about. Solomon lays out wisdom over ten verses about what to do with the money that is in your possession. There, there, there are two parts. Verses 10 through 16, Solomon describes a foolish perspective on, on money at all levels, whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. He's talking about the pursuit of, of stuff, pursuit of, of money. Very timely advice, very timely wisdom during this time of year. That's in verses 10 through 16, a foolish perspective and where it's going to lead you. And then in verse 17 through 20, Solomon outlines a wise perspective toward money. Solomon starts with the foolish, and he ends with wisdom, and will do the, do the same. Solomon gives five woes of wealth, or five moans of money, five grumbles of gold, five distresses of dollars, five sighs of silver. And he says that if you have a foolish perspective about money... It generates dissatisfaction, it attracts dependence, it breeds distress, it inspires deception, and in the end it delivers some very dark days. And that's how he rounds out this foolish perspective toward money. And the first woe of wealth that he gives is money generates dissatisfaction. Money generates dissatisfaction. And, and he tells us two reasons why. He says because its target is unattainable and because the only tune it plays is more, more, more. Look if you would at verse 10. Solomon begins this topic with, with a phrase. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income, this too is vanity. It's chasing the wind. Solomon says while having money has its problems, desiring money is not a better alternative. Phil Reich entitled this passage, Satisfaction Sold Separately. <laughs> Solomon says money is like the professor that tells you the first day of class, no matter what you do, you can't make an A, no matter how hard you work. Actually, I had a professor tell me that one time. That's pretty motivating, isn't it? Nobody makes an A in my class, no matter how hard you work. And I'm just like, well, forget it. Why, why even try? Solomon says it's the same way with money. Let these words sink in. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Solomon uses three words for wealth in this verse. I mean, it's very clear what the topic is about. 
He says, he who loves money, literally silver. You heard that in the New King James translation. Great translation. That's exactly what it says in Hebrew. And then he uses the term wealth or abundance. And then he uses the term income, meaning, meaning gain. He, he uses three words to, to identify the, the, the topic. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, paraphrases chapter 5, verse 10 this way. Here's his paraphrase. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. It's a pretty good paraphrase. John D. Rockefeller, one of the most, uh, one of the richest men in America, quoted Solomon, and he didn't even know it when he was asked how much money was enough. He infamously answered just a little bit more. He didn't even know he was quoting Solomon. Long before Rockefeller ever took his first breath, God had already inscripturated that that truth, that principle. Money, no matter how much you have, doesn't satisfy. And Solomon explains why in the second half of this verse. Notice what Solomon says. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income or or increase. Solomon says money doesn't satisfy because only God can do that. However, Solomon says... There's a built-in dissatisfaction generator when you focus on possessions. He says no matter what abundance we have, we desire more income. You, you never hit the target. He says it's like chasing the wind. That's what the end of verse 10 means when it mentions income. You're not satisfied until you get more, and you get more, and you're not satisfied until you get more. And on and on and on it goes. He says the byproduct of loving money, is it creates a craving for more. It's not just that it leaves you empty of satisfaction. It fuels the covetous engine of the, of the human heart. It increases craving. Focusing on possessions is like the, the yeast that eats the sugar in fermentation. It, its byproduct is intoxicating, and it can become addictive. Solomon says it, it doesn't satisfy because it's, a, it's an elusive lover. You, you, you can never catch your love. You love money, you'll, you'll never catch your, your love. It, it's a moving target. Just whenever you, you think you're about to reach it, you, it moves the goalpost. Your heart moves the goalpost. Derek Kidner said the love of money grows by what it feeds on, and a person created by God needs better fuel than that. Amen. It's sad. Many people are on this merry-go-round thinking that they're getting somewhere and they're going round and round and round. And you are just as tempted as everyone else. Let me, let me prove it to you. Can you think back in your life to some of the thoughts that you had when you first started out or when you hadn't started at all? I'm making minimum wage now. If I could just make $10 an hour, then things would be easier. Was it? <laughs> Maybe for a while, but then what happened? I make $10 an hour now, but if I could just become manager and get benefits, maybe on a salary, then things would get better. It, it, it's, the, it's the law of a little more. And it keeps going and going. Solomon says money cannot satisfy because no matter how much you have, you're only satisfied with a, with a little bit more. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, having a little bit more brings many other issues. The second woe of wealth is money attracts dependence because it requires the, the tax of takers. Look, if you would, at verse 11. It says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to the owners except to, to look on, to, to look at it? Solomon says increased wealth brings increased liabilities in many forms. And you can't do anything about that. All you can do is just watch it happen. That's the idea of verse 11. The more you make, the more it takes, right? The more stuff you have, the more bills they create. If something, uh, it's something we don't often think about whenever we, whenever we long for more money or more things. A newer car means full coverage instead of liability. A house instead of an apartment means you have to buy a lawnmower because you have to mow the grass. More square footage means a larger electric bill. More customers means more employees to take care of those customers. The more you make, the more it takes is what Solomon is saying. But here, Solomon has something very specific in mind. Notice what he says in verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. The more you make, the more they take. Notice it's about those who eat from the, the rich man's table as, as the rich man's table increases. This is a reference to to the taxes of the table. The larger the table gets, the more chairs are around it. And you know who's sitting at the head of the table? The government. That's exactly right. That's the idea that Solomon has here. If there, uh, is there anything more frustrating than calculating what you think you're going to make and then getting your paycheck and seeing that little term that says FICA, Social Security, and whatever else? Well, what, do you, what do you think? That's my money. And they just took it. Guess what? The larger the check, the bigger the FICA, or whatever it is, federal, state. Well, Solomon says that's, that's one of the frustrations of, of money. The more you make, the, gov- the more the government wants. And we just learned last week about the frustrations of corrupt government, didn't we? The more staff you'll have to hire... Now, don't forget, Solomon is describing the woes of loving money, the woes that loving money can can bring. He's not arguing against increasing staff. He's not saying, if you have a business, just just work it yourself. He's not arguing even against paying taxes or having more to, to help others. He's not arguing against having a big, big table. Those are good things. Well, maybe minus the taxes. But, but anyway, he's saying all of these are responsibilities. That's his point. Solomon is saying, don't think having more will make your problems go away and bring you ease. They'll actually increase your responsibility and your accountability. Because having things means an increase in obligations, the more things you have to take care of. That's why people who win the lottery or or professional athletes blow up. They, They never learned how to deal with the weight the increased weight of wealth, and then it's dumped on them, and, and they're, they're crushed. 
Solomon says, don't long for that. Winning the lottery could be the worst thing in the world for you. And all of that extra responsibility and accountability that comes from, from whatever is placed in your hands can, can keep you up at night if you don't follow Solomon's wisdom. Solomon says the third woe is, is it breeds distress because it's tainted by worry. It breeds distress because it's tainted by worry. He says in verse 10, pursuing money generates dissatisfaction. In verse 11, he says it attracts dependence. In verse 12, he says it disturbs its owner's peace. Look, if you would, at verse 12. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Solomon allows us here in verse 12 to to read the the sleep study of two hypothetical men. I read verse 13. Read verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the, the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There's the sleep study. Two hypothetical men here. The first is a working man, meaning a day laborer. And the second is a wealthy man. You see that? Sleep of a working man and the sleep of a, of a wealthy man. He notes their income levels. And he shows how that affects their sleep. The income level of the, the working man. There's a man, the first one, he gets up, he goes to work. Whether he has a little or a lot, his sleep is pleasant, Solomon said. Though he doesn't have much as the wealthy man, he comes home free from worry. And he sleeps soundly, whether he has a full meal or whether he doesn't have a full meal. And then he says the man of means is the, is the opposite. Look at the end of verse 12. But the full stomach of the rich man, or the abundance of the rich man, does not allow him to, to sleep. Solomon says the fullness of the rich man doesn't allow him to sleep, but that some of your translations might, might supply stomach. It's only fullness in Hebrew. This man's problem is not too much steak and caviar and champagne. He has a full stomach, but, but, his, but his head is full of worry. That's the reason he can't sleep. The distress. He lays down at night and he can't sleep because he's thinking about his responsibilities. The more you have, the more you have to work to keep it, don't you? <laughs> And that includes when others are sleeping. You're still working. Making sure that it doesn't fly away. Or making sure the government doesn't take it. Or making sure that there's some leech that doesn't get a hold of it. Or, or whatever it is. This is similar to what Solomon has already told us back in chapter 2, verse, verse 23. You remember it? For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Solomon says if you pursue possessions, if you, if you have a foolish perspective about money, your mind is going to run all night. The body lays down, but the mind is still up. What's the mind thinking about? 
It's thinking about how to make more. This man is thinking about how to keep what he already has. He's thinking about the responsibilities. He's thinking about taxes. He's thinking about how his sales are doing. He, he's thinking about all of the people on the company payroll. He, he's thinking about all the responsibilities and the liabilities. It doesn't bring ease. It brings a greater burden if you're foolish. But the man who works and makes enough to live on and to be generous and to care for his family is fast asleep while the rich man or the man who pursues money is awake. One preacher said, Solomon says there is a direct correlation between increased money and decreased sleep. Did you ever consider the reason you may not be sleeping well is you have a foolish attitude about money? You're not content with what you have. You long for more of it. And if you have it, you're, you're being foolish in the way that you're dealing with it. Solomon says that will steal your sleep. You don't sleep because you're weighed down with many worries. You, and yet God gives consistent rest to those who are wise and who rest in Him. They work and then they... They rest in their lot that He has for them. Money will steal your sleep. It's also a deceitful friend. It's a deceitful friend. Solomon gives us the fourth woe of wealth in verses 13 through 15. He says it inspires deception, pursuing money inspires deception. He tells us why. Because it turns toxic if it's stored, and because its prosperity is temporary. You try to keep it, you try to store it up, it, it's toxic. And if you trust in it, you're going to find that it is very temporary. If you would at verse 13. Here is the verse. There's a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost to a bad investment and, and he fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. That's the idea of verse 14. Solomon describes a grievous evil related to money and being stored up. That's what he's talking about here. Hoarding. He's not talking about saving for retirement or even putting away for a rainy day. In fact, you can go to Solomon on Proverbs, and that's exactly what he tells you to do. You leave an inheritance for your children's children. You, it's wise not to, not to go into surety and all of those, those other things. But here he says, rich is kept for yourself brings great harm. It's a grievous evil. If your focus is is making money, or you're foolish with your money, no matter how much you have, whether you have 35000 a year or 350000 a year, Solomon says it's self-harming. He says every time you put a paycheck in the bank intent on keeping it all, when you receive the deposit ticket, you might as well pull out a ball-peen hammer and hit yourself in the, in the forehead. That's what he says. Solomon says unshared and unused money is like eating uncooked food. It needs the heat created by giving and using it to kill the harmful bacteria. 
Storing money is like storing sugar cane. It can make something sweet to eat if you use it. You convert it into what it was made for, but if you store it too long, it molds and develops a fungus that's toxic. And Solomon describes here very specifically what he means by this hurt. What type of hurt will it, will it bring? Again, at verse 14, he says it's deadly whenever it's stored. Riches being hoarded by their owner to their hurt. But in verse 14, he says it's deceitful in its security. It, its prosperity is temporary. It seems like one thing and then turns out to be another. Verse 14. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he'd fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. Notice he had something and then there was nothing. And something happened to turn something into nothing. And then there's a dependent there. And now he's left in the lurch. Solomon says one of the woes of money is it can seduce you into a sense of security. Do you feel more secure whenever you look at your bank account and it says $10 or it says $100 or $1,000 or whatever it is? Solomon says that's a false sense of security. Oh, I like it whenever mine says $1,000 rather than $10. But I shouldn't trust in that 1000 or in that 10 I should trust in God. Because money can go as fast as it comes. You've experienced that, haven't you? <laughs> you put the money in the bank and then you get on your little app and you look and you see what the deposit did to your bank account. And you feel pretty good about that. And then three days later, you haven't looked at it, and you go look at that app again, and your debit card has sucked it all out. Or somebody using your debit card has sucked it all out. Solomon says it, it can deceive you into trusting in it. And the more you have, the greater the temptation is. The larger the padding, the more you think you're insulated from devastation and the less you feel like you have to trust God. Solomon says you should not trust in money because it can fly away much faster than it walked in. Solomon's already alluded to, to how money can, can keep a man up at night, back in verse 12. Remember the sleep study? Now he adds another twist. Verse 14 describes this same man who was up all night, trying to figure out how he can take care of what he has, but now this man, calamity comes in and he wipes everything out. We're not told what happened. The Hebrew just says an evil task. Is it maybe a bad decision, maybe a poor investment, maybe, maybe sin? But Solomon's point is not what caused the fall. It's that he was duped into a sense of security and now he's reduced to nothing. Solomon says loving riches is like running off with your best friend's girl. You might have her, but she can't be trusted, right? I mean, if she would run off to leave him for you, what do you think she's going to do when somebody else comes along who's better? That's exactly what money does. Riches are deceitful, and if you build your life on them, you can be left devastated, and so can others. Sadly, being seduced into a false security doesn't just affect the owner or the possessor. Solomon throws in this man has a son at the end of the verse. It, you can see that. He fathered a son and there was nothing to support him. 
if you're foolish and you trust money, then, then your bad decision can affect others. There's a bitter disappointment when, when a man loses what he's worked for. But it's increased whenever it, it affects those who depend on you. Now those responsibilities that keep you up at night, now those responsibilities that you have that you thought would bring you ease, now, now they become even heavier. Because now these dependents, you have to show up for them and you don't have anything. I can only remember seeing my father cry twice in my life. He was a self-made man, is a self-made man. He was on his own by the time he was nine years of age. I heard all his stories, and yet the ones I heard I believe were true. Getting up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, delivering newspapers before he went to school, to get out of school at 3 o'clock and deliver more newspapers. And I only saw him cry twice. Once was over a wayward family member, and the other was when he lost his entire fortune in his late 40s, early 50s. A man who ran an investment firm committed securities fraud and left all of the investors with nothing. Millions of dollars were gone overnight. They were getting statements, and they looked like that they were gaining a lot, and yet whenever they went to look behind the statements, there was nothing in the bank. That man was convicted, and he went to jail, but my father's life savings, his company's money, even some of the, my, his own father's investments were that he was managing was, was worth nothing overnight. Solomon said, my dad had two thoughts whenever he woke up that morning and got that phone call. The first thought was, I thought it was safe. And the second thought was, others are depending on me. What am I going to do now? I thought it was safe, and others are depending on me. And Solomon says, if this is you, you need to remember what Job said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I leave. Or what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6-7, we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Because if you don't, you'll have some dark days for the short time that you're on the earth. Here's number five, the fifth woe. Loving money delivers dark days because it's a thief. It's a thief of life. Verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. What a vivid picture. This also is a grievous evil, exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Solomon starts by explaining why it's a grievous evil to pursue money or to be foolish about money. What a man enters this world with at birth, literally what's in his hand, that's what he, what he departs with. The same portfolio you had when your baby picture was taken is what will be in your wrinkly fingers when they relax after your final breath. That's what Solomon says. The Hebrews quite emphatic. Quite exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. What's evil about that? All of your life you will labor and what you gain 
can keep you up at night. It'll fly away. And even if it doesn't, you'll leave it all behind. Solomon's point is you enter with nothing, you leave with nothing, and maybe, maybe that should influence what we do in between, our entry and departure. If you look for money for anything, the best that it can offer you is a short sprint and all of these woes. Martin Luther said, as I forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them now while I am living. So why do you kill yourself for it? That's Solomon's question. And that's exactly what it will do. Verse 16b, what, what is the advantage to him who toils for, for the wind? Solomon asked a logical question. If these are the woes that money can bring, why should anyone labor for material possessions alone? If you leave this world with the same amount you entered, why would you give your life for accumulating it? You shouldn't. <laughs> Not them alone. And Solomon says it's going to cost you. Look at verse 17. Throughout his life, a person who who does this, who's foolish, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Oliver Goldsmith said, Where wealth accumulates, men decay. Solomon says he eats or consumes whatever he makes in darkness, meaning misery. A person of means eats alone in the dark and can't enjoy anything that they have because it's been tainted by worry and it's turned toxic. Everything has a price. And the price of a life spent toiling for money is great. A preoccupation with money will lead to a gloomy life, Solomon says. And he describes Three results of that preoccupation. He says vexation, sickness, and anger. Vexation, the the cares or frustration of the heart. You'll be filled with cares. Sickness, this is a physical strain that, that that money can have on you. The physical toil, whether that's a toll, whether that's high blood pressure or stress, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. Derek Kidner was quite humorous. He said, think of all of the money that we spend trying to undo the effects of ease. Think of what we spend in exercise machines and health clubs alone. What an absurdity to pour out money and effort just to undo the damage of money and ease. A life of ease is not an easy life. Can you imagine your grandfather or my grandfather who was a body shop foreman going to spin class? To get in shape? (laughs) I don't think my Uncle Bailey, who was a farmer, ever thought one moment about lifting weights to get in shape. (laughs) He was lifting feed sacks. He didn't need to lift weights to get in shape. And the last one on this lift is, is, is anger. It's kind of strange, isn't it? How can money bring anger? It's supposed to make you happy. Wrath or grief, literally. It's the anger and all the effects. It's your sinful response when money leaves your hand. That's how it happens. It's the frustration of a failed ambition. You thought you had the deal and then it, and then it left and it was frustrating. The anger over a sale you lost, the wrath at your employees not making more for you. Or the anger whenever your wife spends too much or your child or whatever it is. 
You want to see that anger on full display? Read the local court filings. Lawsuits are a tool people use to express their wrath. I'll make you pay for what you did to me. Solomon says loving money is a miserable life. So don't crave it. You say, wow. If those are the woes of, uh, uh, that money brings, I don't want it. Well, maybe just a little bit more than I have, but I don't want too much of it. So what's the answer? What's the wise perspective on money? I mean, after telling you how foolish it is, you might expect Solomon to stay, stay far away from it. Take, take a vow of poverty. You know, put on one of those funny robes, chant, and eat paste. Divest yourself of, of all your material goods. But that's not what he says. Solomon doesn't leave us in the woes. Now he points us to the wisdom, beginning in verse 18 through, through 20. Solomon says that we should connect money to God in his gift of contentment. What follows in verses 18 through, through 20 is one of those passages, one of the passages I told you about in Ecclesiastes that's a golden nugget. It's a golden nugget passage that Solomon tucks into the crevices of the fall as he's showing us the terrain of, of the curse. He, he, he places these, these, these treasures, and this is one of them. So there's two parts to, to this wisdom on, on wealth. A wise perspective on possessions is live life for your Creator and gain his gift of contentment. And that's how you're wise with possessions, whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. Whether you're the day laborer or whether you're the man of means. This first one is found in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink. And enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, watch this, which God has given him, for this is his reward. Solomon starts here with behold. It's a call to, to attention. <clears throat> here is what I've seen. Behold what I've seen. He says there's another vantage point that you need to look from. Here's a different angle that changes everything. Here, here, here's another life, equally outward, just as real and observable, Michael Eaton says. Eat, drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun. You say that, that almost sounds contradictory to what Solomon just said. It, it may be even sounds contrary to the New Testament. I mean, didn't Solomon just say that money did all these horrible things to you if you had it? And now he says, enjoy it, enjoy what you have? I mean, didn't Jesus rebuke a rich man for saying something like this? I'm going to fill my barns and tear them down and build bigger barns? Eat, drink, and be merry for, for, for tomorrow you, you die? No, they, they don't contradict at all. And there's a key, I'll show you why. Changes everything. The man described in verses 10 through 17 and the rich man that Jesus rebukes left out one crucial part to life. 
God. They don't contradict at all, and Solomon shows us why. Notice where Solomon says enjoyment comes from. In verse 18. The end of verse 18, the years of life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Which God has given him. Solomon says enjoyment doesn't come from money, but from God. It's his gift, in fact. Which his creator has given him. Which is why he says, live life for your creator. You add that and it changes everything. Solomon has not been arguing against laboring. He's not been arguing against making money or having things. He, he's arguing against the, the empty pit of a life that, that, that comes when we pursue it without God. How our heart responds when we love it and we want more. Thinking its use is for us alone. Worrying over trusting in it. Solomon says wisdom is do your work. Use the gifts God's given. Make what you're able by following God's commands and then make sure you don't leave them out. If you do, you're only going to find the woes that he's just described. Solomon says, I've seen it. And now he wants you to see it too. In verses 13 through 17, there's no mention of God. Now Solomon observes a life related to all those same things with God in it, and he says there's joy there. It's vital to understand, to, to, to keep you out of the ditch of the extremes. I want you to notice that Solomon portrays a normal life here. Eating and drinking and laboring, being industrious, that's what it means. He doesn't say that you need to go to the desert or flee to the temple. He describes the exact same activities as he did in verses 13 or 10 through through 17. Eat, drink, be, be industrious, labor. He says enjoyment can even come in the curse. Notice he says it's under the sun. He's not even talking about heaven. He's talking about right now. Labor is toilsome. The man before is doing all of these same things, but his focus is on the things, not the Creator who gave the task. The antidote for, for love of money and more is the love of God. The cure for seeing others as leeches is, is a giving heart. The treatment for sleeplessness is trusting God's sovereignty. The medicine for trusting in riches is, is your Father's care who knows exactly what you need. The healing for the dark days here is hoping in the bright day that God's going to bring. What Solomon says. You see, after the garden, God is left out of man's sinful pursuits. And that brings emptiness. But a person can live even under the curse and avoid that by reconnecting everything to God. You can have a joyous, contented life, and that is a gift from God. Solomon ends these, this list of, of ten frustrations the same place he began. Where did he begin in chapter 3? With God. It's all about the purposes of God, chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. Solomon says, looking there will transform the burdens of money to blessings. It will, it will fill an empty pursuit with divine purpose. It will allow you to enjoy what is otherwise unenjoyable. And it will bring you to a state of contentment. You say, that sounds great. How? 
Well, that's what he covers in verse 19. Verse 19. Furthermore, as every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Twice, the gift of God. Solomon says the ability to enjoy what God has given, whether it's much or little, is a gift from him. God gives the gift of contentment to those who live a life for their Creator. Do you remember what Solomon revealed to us back in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25? Chapter 2, we learned that the reason that we're not satisfied in the curse while we live on the earth is because God removed our ability to find satisfaction in anything other than Him. You'll not find it in money or in wisdom or labor or whatever it is. God's taken that away. You cannot find satisfaction in this life because of the curse. The reason that you're on a never-ending search, maybe even this morning, is because you haven't come to Christ Now Solomon says, once you find Christ, God restores your ability to be satisfied and gives you the gift of enjoyment of even some of the pleasures of life. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus promise? He promised you life and what else? Abundantly. Solomon says there's no different with money and possessions. You'll not find satisfaction at all if you leave him out. And the good news, Solomon says, is that if you live for him, he'll give you the the gift of joy. You can think about it. What you want is enjoyment, not your possessions. You could care less about silver or gold or a new car or whatever it is. What you want is what they give you, the enjoyment that comes from it. You pursue possessions as a means to an end, and and they don't provide it. In fact, they can bring the opposite. Enjoyment can only come from God. Satisfaction is not a factor of income. But Solomon says the capacity to enjoy, no matter how much or how little, is a gift from God. It comes from, it comes from Him, from, from your lot in life that, that He's given. The God who has given the ability to make wealth also gives the power to enjoy it. That's what Solomon says. Don't forget that. Wealth doesn't bring you the enjoyment. It's God, the one who gave you the ability, is the one who gives you the ability to enjoy it. In verse 20, Solomon ends with this picture of a contented life. Look at verse 20. For he will not often, notice it's an explanation, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Here's a picture of contentment. It's a very different picture from the first section. When you're preoccupied with God, you don't have time to be occupied with anything else. Solomon says, don't just remove the love of money, insert the love of God. Here's a man laboring, eating, drinking, giving, enjoying the fruit of his hands. 
And he doesn't pay attention to the curse. God keeps him occupied with a full heart of gladness. That's a wise life. That's what a wise life will, will bring you. That's what a wise perspective on, on money will bring. It'll reduce your frustrations. Do you not want to be occupied with worries but gladness? Then listen to Solomon and Jesus. Jesus tells you to be generous in what you give. And Solomon says, make your life about God and be content in whatever you keep. But if you leave either of those out, you're not going to have joy. If you don't give generously, you won't enjoy what you keep because it will be consumed on yourself. And if you don't see what you get to keep as a gift from God, then you're not going to be content with your lot. You're not going to find joy there either. Those two joys complement one another. So where does gladness come from? Seeing everything through God's lens. Come to Christ and God will restore your ability to enjoy even earthly things. And then in, in that enjoyment, there will be contentment. But it only comes from Him. Should you bow your heads?